0: Now for the reading of our scripture from 1st Peter chapter 2 verses 11 to 25 beloved I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it you endure? But if when you are good, if you do good and suffer, for it, for, it, for it you endure is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When his, he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who justifies justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Thank you. You may be seated.
1: Let's pray. Father, we believe that your word is powerful. We believe it's living and active. And we come now, God, to receive from your hand and from your word that which you have for us today. And you give good gifts to your children. And what you have for us here today in your word are a lot of good gifts. Help us to receive them. Help us to know them, help us to do them by the power of your Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I know that I had said before that once we get back into some epistles, like we are in First and Second Peter, that the pace would dramatically slow down from where we've been um, in other uh, Old Testament books or even Gospels. And I was going to try to break this passage into two messages, but the context dictates that I do it as one. If I would have done two, literally, we would have had two messages that were the same, just with different subjects. We'd had the same message, basically, with a different text, same application points, and I'm like, the context dictates that we take this whole passage um, and if I'm honest, it's not my preference, but I, we do what the context dictates. We do what the Bible is doing. So we have also covered a lot of this same subject or these subjects in different books. We uh, Romans talked about this a lot. The pastoral epistles talked about the, these subjects. So this will also help to refresh and supplement those other passages Um, So we'll cover a lot of ground today. Obviously, you saw that 11 to 25, uh, but it's necessary to get the whole picture here. So just keep that in mind as we go forward. So verse 11, uh, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Now, if you'll reach back to last week... um, the passage last week ended with Peter rattling off a list of but you are's for his readers. And he was contrasting the recipients of the letter to those who had rejected and cast off the chosen chief cornerstone of God's holy dwelling place that God is building, uh, and the chief cornerstone being Christ, and those casters off people, they rejected Jesus but then ended up stumbling over him and being offended by him. But you, he said at the end of our passage last week, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Wow. That's quite a list of wonderful things to be and to have done to us as God's people, God took people who were, oh well, my, my my text is compressed here. I'm missing a section. Give me a second. I hate that's happened one other time before. Here we go. Let me make it a little bigger. Um, <coughs> ba, 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 ba. yeah, there we go. That's quite a list of wonderful things to be done and to have done to them and to us, right? Well, starting today's passage, in light of those amazing truths, all those things that you are and have had done to you, Peter encourages his recipients and us then to live in light of all of that. And he leads with calling them beloved or beloved. And this is a wonderful little word that means just what it says. It means to be loved. It can be translated as dear or worthy of love. Now, stop a second. It can be translated as worthy of love. Do you feel like you're worthy of love? Us Reformed folk, we're not worthy of anything. We're not worthy. We're trash. We're dirt. We're the scum of the earth. We're terrible sinners. And what this word is saying is you're worthy of love. You're worthy of God's love. You're worthy of each other's love because of who Jesus is and because of what he has done. That word beloved can be expanded to mean a person dearly loved and cherished. And sometimes that person is preferred above all others. And, listen to this, and treated with partiality. Not impartiality, partiality. Don says to everybody, by the way, you're my favorite, okay? He says that to everybody. Dearly beloved. Dearly beloved. <laughs> to say that I am beloved, for Peter to refer to his readers as, and, and he could mean beloved by, him, by himself, beloved by each other, beloved by God, all those apply, it means I have picked you out And I'm going to show you partiality. Jesus, Paul, the writer of Hebrews, who we don't know who that was, by the way, James, Peter, John, and Jude all use this word to refer to those that they are speaking or writing to. And to keep it simple, Christians are beloved to each other and they are beloved by God as well. And that's beautiful in a lot of different ways. And we should relish it. And we'll talk about that more later in application. So Peter calls them beloved. And he urges them to live in light of the wonderful stuff at the end of last week's passage. And then he urges them as sojourners and exiles. Now that's a descriptor before he urges them to do what he's going to urge them to do, which we'll get to in a minute. But he identifies them as sojourners and exiles. Now what does that mean? Well, remember, when we... We said that when we are born again, we have a new home, a heavenly home, and we're passing through this world to get to that home. Well, as such, as born-again people, we are sojourners and exiles in the land that we are in right now. Sojourners are people who we would define as ain't from around here, okay? They're dwelling in a place that is not their home. I think of Getty and his family that were here and that are leaving in three days to go back to Lithuania. That's where they're from. That's where him and his wife are from. Now, his kids were born here, I think. Two of them were born here, okay. They were sojourners while they were here in America. They're not American. They're Lithuanian. And they're going back to their home. But while they were here, they conducted themselves as sojourners, people who aren't from around here, people who are dwelling in a place that's not their home. But these readers are also called exiles by Peter. Exiles are people cast out of their home. In the case of these recipients of Peter's letter, they, they have been cast out of the world system. Commentator P.J. Actemeyer, Actemeyer is a great name, by the way, very good, strong German name, puts it this way, God took people who were at home And turned them into aliens and exiles. It is the change in status from people once at home in their culture to people now homeless in that same culture and the issuing problems that prompted the writing of this letter. End of quote. And I think that's important to note here. We went from being at home here to being transformed, adopted into a new family, a new kingdom to not being at home in the same place that we used to be at home in. And this world is not our home. This world and its system and the structures as they are are not our home. We're looking for a better country, a country that is coming later and have not moved out of our former home, which is actually where we're still living. Put those pieces together. It's a bit awkward. So, Peter says, in light of our awkward arrangement as it currently is, so then he urges them to abstain from the passions of the flesh... Which wage war against your soul. You see, we're not at home here anymore, but there's a problem. We are still in the midst of norms and the conditions here that we're used to, and some of those things that make this not our home, we like. While we're in our old home, which is not our true home, our flesh has passions, desires, longings, which are contrary to the holy way of life we are called to as followers of Jesus and that we will ultimately realize when we're in our final home when we reach there. So it's a little bit of a struggle for us, these passions, desires, and longings that we have which are contrary to the holy way of life we're called to as followers of Jesus. And these passions, Peter says, wage war against our souls. Paul says in Galatians 5.17, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. You are a walking civil war. The flesh and the spirit are at odds with each other while we await our final redemption, which then will redeem our flesh. So Peter says back in his letter, abstain, keep yourself from the passions of the flesh. The desires that the flesh tells you, you want these. Remember this? This was fun. This was good. Peter says keep away from those things because those desires, those passions of the flesh are waging war against your soul. And that's an absolute. You don't ever get past that. You don't ever get done with that. You don't ever win that war. Amen. Until we're finally and fully redeemed in the new kingdom, in the new heavens and the new earth, which is our true home. Oh, I wish somebody would have told me that when I was 14. Don't do what your flesh does want to do. You're here, but you're not at home here. So don't live like you are from here, because you're not. So then how are we supposed to conduct ourselves? Well, that's actually the whole point of the rest of the message. We're going to see in verses 12 to 20 which we're not taking as one chunk, we're going to see in those verses specific ways that we are to live and then in verses 21 to 25 what that looks like in the life of the one, capital O, who did it best, which is Jesus. So verse 12 next. Let's see if I've caught up with my other... Oh, yes. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, remember that we are sojourners and exiles once we are adopted into God's family and become subjects of His kingdom. Well, all those not in that family or that kingdom are part of this world and its order. There's no hesitation. There's no reservation. There's no check in their spirits that what they want is not right or not good or a sin even. They have no conviction of sin. Okay, So Peter refers to all those who are not believers as Gentiles here. That's a very Jewish term. To the Jews, there were two groups of people in the world. There were Jews and there were Gentiles. If you weren't a Jew, you were a Gentile. If you weren't born into the family of Abraham, you were a Gentile. Well, here that Jewish flavor is introduced by Peter calling non-Christians or non-believers Gentiles. So now there's two groups of people, followers of Jesus, not followers of Jesus. And he's calling those non-followers of Jesus Gentiles here. Again, using very Jewish language. But the Jews saw Gentiles as unclean, called them dogs. Peter, though, here, says to keep your conduct around these Gentiles, these unbelievers, to keep your conduct honorable among them. And I think that's interesting. The Jews would avoid Gentiles at all costs. They wouldn't eat with them. They wouldn't hang out with them. They wouldn't touch them because that would make them unclean. But Peter is here actually encouraging honorable conduct among the Gentiles. Jesus had done quite a work in Peter. If you look in Galatians 2, you see there were some issues with eating with Gentiles after, even, even after he was saved and born again. And here he's saying, hang out with the Gentiles. He's probably addressing Gentiles in this letter. And Peter says that they are to conduct themselves with honor among unbelievers. Why? So that, he says, when they speak against you as evildoers, which surely was happening in their day, And Peter believes that will continue to happen, and it is still happening. Unbelievers speaking evil of believers. And if you haven't heard it, you're not listening because it's out there. When they do that, not if, when they do that, Peter wants the believers to be living in such a way that what is seen is the good deeds of the believers. Let your conduct be honorable, doing good works, so that when the evil accusations come... Somebody says, tell me about this. What's going on? The people look at your life and they see good deeds. Can you believe these Christians? Yeah, they're terrible. They're helping people. Can you believe these Christians and the audacity they have? Yeah, they're serving people and they're loving people. The audacity, right? And note, this is not about reputation, but it's about deeds. Thomas Schreiner says this, Peter did not summon believers to a verbal campaign of self-defense or to the writing of tracts in which they defend their morality. Oh boy. He enjoined believers to pursue virtue and goodness so that their goodness would be apparent to all in society. End quote. And when that happens, Peter says, even those unbelieving Gentiles will glorify God. Wow. Your good deeds done among the unbelievers, helps those unbelievers see the glory of God. And it will even lead to them proclaiming the glory of God when they talk about the good that you're doing. And that glory will come when? He says, on the day of visitation. Now, what's that? A couple different views of this. Depends on who you listen to, what you read. One view says that the day of visitation refers to the last days, which it has that sound, judgment day the day of visitation, and that unbelievers on that last day will testify to the good deeds that they saw in their lives by believers and will thus glorify God. I don't like that. I don't think that didn't feel right to me. It doesn't seem right. The other view says that the day of visitation refers to the day that these unbelievers get saved themselves. And then they tell of the good deeds they saw the believers doing, thus giving glory to God. That makes more sense to me. So there's an evangelistic tone to this conduct. To this conduct. To these deeds. So yeah, that makes good sense to me. They see our good deeds. God visits them. Saves them. And then they give glory to God saying, Man, I was watching these Christians and they just kept doing good deeds. And then God showed me the only way to do this is by my spirit. And they become born again. Now, What does this conduct, what do these deeds look like? Verses 13 to 17. Give us our first example. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Hmm. Hmm. Wow. Now, before we jump into this, don't forget the situation that Peter and the recipients of his letter were living in. Many, many, many historians look back and they believe that the the emperor of Rome at Peter's writing time, Nero, had literally burned a section of Rome so he could take it over and build a palace there. And then he blamed that fire on Christians, starting a persecution that would increase and grow over the coming years. That's the situation that Peter's living in and his recipients are living in as Christians. And Peter's first call to good conduct for these Christians is to be subject, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution. Whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Hmm. Now that command there, be subject, that's the command. Look at this word. I'm, again, stay with me. I'll read it to you. Hupataso. Hupataso. Forty times. Means put under, be subject unto, be subject, submit oneself unto, submit oneself, be in subjection unto, put in subjection under, and translated miscellaneously. Twelve times. Now here's the definition. To arrange under, to subordinate, to subject, put in subjection, to subject oneself, to obey, to submit to one's control, to yield to one's admonition or advice, to obey or to be subject. I love this additional information. A Greek military term meaning to arrange troop divisions in a military fashion under the command of a leader. Hmm. Now... The command is to... Oh, phooey. I went too far. There we are. Sorry. Be subject. That's what that word hupotasso is talking about. In non-military use, it was... Now listen to this. A voluntary attitude of giving in, cooperating... Assuming responsibility and carrying a burden. And who are these believers to give in to, to cooperate with, and to be subject to? Every human institution. Every period, human period, institution, period. What? And he goes on to show that those institutions are primarily the government. The dad-gum government. He refers to the emperor as supreme or to governors sent by the emperor. And what are those governing authorities to do? They are to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. That's the purpose of government. Jesus had said at the Great Commission that all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him. What David read this morning when Jesus is interacting with Pilate, he says, you wouldn't have any authority unless it was given to you by my Father. The government is to wield that authority, Paul says in Romans 13, as those who have received the sword to show that authority, to show Jesus' authority, because all authority is Jesus' authority. That has led many to say that if the government does not honor Jesus with that authority, then we don't have to submit to them. But again, who's Peter referring to as emperor here? Not a nice person. A guy who was not living according to godly principles. A guy who was actively persecuting Christians. A nasty fella who had a long laundry list of evils that he had meted out to those who call themselves Christians. So if there was a time to give instructions on how to defy the government, Peter was surely in one. But, he says, don't do that. Instead, he calls on his readers to submit even harder. Obey even more so. For, Peter says, this is the will of God. Oh my goodness. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now look at that. Peter says it's the will of God. That even if people and governments are ignorant and foolish, wrong and bad, what is going to silence them is our doing good. Now don't miss that. It's God's will. For his people, and we say all the time, we want to know God's will. We want to do God's will. Well, this says this is God's will. This is spelled out pretty clearly, isn't it? He didn't say to organize protests or mass demonstrations against these evil, corrupt leaders. He didn't say to start a grassroots campaign to return power to the people. He said to submit and do good deeds. And let me tell y'all, that's radical. That's radical. And I do think, here's where we start to get a bad case of the yeah buts. But we shouldn't. Submit and do good. Submit to the emperor and to the governors. Yeah but, no. Put them away. Put away your yeah buts. And submit and do good. Submit and do good because that is true freedom, Peter says. And he says to live as people who are free, not using our freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And don't miss that. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil because sometimes I think we can shake our fist at the government, we can publicly wag our tongues at the government and say, well, I'm a Christian so I should do this. Don't use your Christian freedom as a cover-up for doing and speaking evil against the government. Yeah, but. No. It's the will of God that you should do these things. And he's appealing to their free will to choose God's will over their own, over their fleshly desires. True freedom is doing what God has called us to do, not being enslaved to our own base desires. And boy, we do love to shake our fists, don't we? Only those who are servants of God are truly free. So show that you are His servants. Show that you are truly free by doing His will. And His will is submitting and doing good. To who? Well, verse 17 tells us, Honor everyone. Oh, Lordy. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Huh. Honor everyone. Now, we've seen this word honor a few times already in Peter. And I'm afraid that we as a culture have lost all concept of honor. It means to have the proper valuation of a thing or here, a person. Let me ask you this question. Do you know the value of every person? Yes, especially those you disagree with. Yes, especially those you don't like. Do you know the value of them? Scripture is clear. We are all of us, every human being made in the image of God. All of us. Do you recognize that image in every human being? Every single one. Regardless of race, creed, cause, orientation. Do you honor everyone? Because that's a pretty tall order. And it's a command. You can't do that outside of the help of the Holy Spirit of God. You can't see the image of God in other people without the Holy Spirit of God opening your eyes to see that image in that person that you despise. We're not condoning their deeds, but we are showing honor to them as a person made in the image of God. And who are we to do that to? Every single human being. That's radical. Honor everyone. Hold them in high regard because they're made in the image of God. Peter then turns his attention to those in the church. Love the brotherhood. Sorry, sisters, no love for you. We've already covered that. That's not what it's saying. True Christians love each other. Truly he taught us to love one another. Jesus said that's how the world will know that we're his, by the love that we have one for another. Let me ask you, do you love your brothers in the Lord? Yes, even that one. <laughs> He's, my favorite. He's your favorite, I know he is. He's a knucklehead, she's your favorite. I know how this works. Part of the conduct that you're called to, to radical obedience to the will of God as an alien, as a sojourner, as an exile, is to love the brotherhood. The next command is to fear God. Fear is honor on steroids. To know the value, worth, and power of God and to stand in awe and to tremble before Him for who He is. Proverbs says this is where wisdom starts. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And Peter says it's a must for your conduct as a believer. You must fear God. And finally, the list of four ends with honor the emperor. Just in case you thought he might have been kidding at the beginning of all this, Peter reiterates that our goal has to include honoring, venerating, properly valuating the person and position of the emperor, the leader of the government. Yes, even the one who persecutes and disrespects you. Yes, even the one that legislates directly in contrast to what you would have them to legislate. Honor him. Show him honor. Honor his position and the authority that he has because that authority is from God. This is God's will for you. And I promise you can't do it outside of the power of the Holy Spirit of God. But Peter ain't done yet. 18 to 20. Servants. We're talking about getting beat here. We're talking about slave and master. And he's not addressing the masters. Servants. What's God's will for you? Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Well, I got a good master, so. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. As if submitting to authorities who are persecuting you isn't enough, our God-glorifying behavior also calls for a right servant-master relationship. That word servant there at the beginning of verse 18 is the Greek word oiketes. And it's only used four times in the New Testament. When we covered this relationship in the pastoral epistles, we saw the word for bondservants to be doulos. And we said that all kinds of professions in Rome at that time, doctors, lawyers, accountants, and many others would be bond servants in the Roman Empire. They worked for somebody else. They were enslaved to somebody else. And slaves were everywhere. And not to be thought of like we think of chattel slavery, where one person owns another one and trades them like cattle. That's not the way Roman slavery worked most of the time. Most of the time. People were free people, but all of their work was for somebody else. But now here, this is not the same that we saw with do This actually makes more sense for us that work for someone else. Someone else owns a business, say, and we work for them to benefit their household, their business. So think Employee or maybe even a step below that, as one who does all they do to help the household that they live in that is not theirs. Well, these servants are to do what? Be subject. Now, we've seen that already, right? To be subject to whom? To your masters. This is the same word we saw in 1 Timothy, and it's the Greek word despotes. A despot. Well, that don't sound real good. It ain't. It means master or lord. Think boss. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Anybody know what the word for respect is? Phobos. Where we get our word phobia, which means fear of. All respect, all fear Reverence, respect, fear, like what we're called to show God back in verse 17. And then Peter adds this wild statement, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Like we were saying about emperors and governors, whether they're good or we like them or not, masters, bosses, owners are to be shown all respect. Not based on their performance, but on their position. My goodness gracious, that's crazy important. Not based on their performance, but on their position. Not only the good and gentle, but also show all respect to the unjust bosses. All respect. Are you seeing a pattern here? Oh, please listen to me. Young people, please listen to me. Please listen to what the Bible's saying here. Forget me. We as Christians are to recognize and respect authority in all its forms. And note that Peter doesn't leave any room for any excuses. Well, but this guy ain't nice. Show him all respect. Well, this guy does unjust stuff. Show him all respect. Why? Because he's in a position of authority. He's the emperor. He's a governor. He's your boss. For, he says in verse 19, this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Mm -mm -mm. Don't miss that statement inside the commas there. Mindful of God. The Christian is looking through the man through the position, through the authority even, and is seeing God Himself. Amen. And is therefore submitting to God, even in and through an unjust master or boss. No, God is not unjust, but all authority comes from God. And we saw in Romans 13 that that's true. And so when we see authority, when we see authority in all forms, we see God. And this is a huge deal. You say, it doesn't feel like a huge deal. It is a huge deal. The culture out there is telling you to rebel and reject all authority. And the Word of God is saying, look through it all and see God. And honor Him by submitting to that authority even if you are suffering unjustly as a result of that authority. Holy cow. And if we're suffering while we are seeing God in this submission, it's a gracious thing. (laughs) A gracious thing. Verses 19 and 20 again. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? What credit is that for you? But if when you do good and suffer or are beaten for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Y'all, this is radical. This is crazy talk. This is like we're not from here. This is like we're not like everybody else. Don't miss this. Peter is setting us up for the last few verses, which we'll look at in a few minutes. There is a grace that is patently Christian when we do what God commands and end up suffering for it at the hands of unjust men. Disobeying and suffering as a result is just suffering. Suffering. But doing right and suffering for it is seen as gracious in God's eyes. And don't miss this. We aren't those who are to find loopholes as to why we shouldn't honor those in authority. And we aren't those who bellyache when things don't go our way when we do the right thing. That's radical. You gathered around the water cooler talking about your boss. Or your Clark Griswold and you get a Jelly of the Month Club membership instead of your bonus. And you go and take him prisoner and kidnap him and let him give him a piece of your mind. Don't do that, obviously. We are not those who are to bellyache when things don't go our way when we do the right thing. Because when we do the right thing and we suffer because of it, we receive grace from God. And we keep on keeping on. We keep on submitting. We keep on doing good deeds, even if it leads, especially if it leads to our suffering. Why? And here's the right hook. Four, to this you have been called... but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. What a five verses that is. That could be a few messages in and of itself. And we might revisit it next week, I'm not sure. But let's start where they start, okay? After calling his readers to recognize and honor authority, even when it leads to them suffering, Peter says, For to this you have been called. That's quite a statement. You have been called to honoring authority. You have been called to suffering unjustly. You have been called to suffering unjustly. Well, that's not fair, exactly. And that's what you've been called to. Because because Christ also suffered for You. In this new kingdom, in our sometime in the future coming home, our ultimate destination is Christ-likeness. You have been called to Christ-likeness. You are being shaped and fashioned to be more like Jesus each and every day. And one day we'll see him and know him as he is and we'll see ourselves as he is because that's how we will be. And since you've been called to Christ's likeness, and since Christ suffered, so then you have been called to suffering. He left you an example so that you might follow in His steps. And what is that example? He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Oh, my word. You want to talk about the most unjust thing to ever happen in human history? You want to talk about the most diabolical work of human flesh? The righteous, sinless Son of God was mocked, spit upon, beaten, and crucified after being unjustly condemned by the sinful beings that he had created. Jesus committed no sin, and when he was reviled, he didn't stick out his chest and say, "I am the Son of God. Learn some respect." He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He said, "I, I could call legions of angels." but I want the will of God to be done, and the will of God is me being unjustly condemned and headed to the cross to die for the sins of my people. He didn't threaten, but what did he do? Instead of threatening or reviling, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The son entrusted himself to his father, knowing that God himself would ultimately judge him, the son, And that God the Father would ultimately also judge those who were mistreating him. And that was good enough for him. Paul says in Romans, don't take your own vengeance. That's God's work. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And Jesus believed that and entrusted himself to that all the way to the cross. And that's the pattern that we're to follow. Now let me ask you this, 20 first century Christian? Does that sound like fun? How you feeling today? But we're blessed and highly favored. And it's a gracious thing in the sight of God to do good and to suffer for it. No, that don't sound like a lot of fun. But it is the pattern that we're called to. And what did Jesus' obedience lead to? He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus' obedience, Jesus' suffering unjustly, Jesus entrusting himself to the Father led to our salvation. That's the pattern that we were left. Remember earlier... Peter said, they'll see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Our obedience could very possibly, will more than likely, lead to the salvation of other people. We don't save them. God saves them. Jesus' obedience led to our salvation. Our salvation then calls us to obedience to His pattern, and our obedience to His pattern leads to people glorifying God, which is the goal. His sinless suffering led to the removal of our sins and thus our sinlessness. Our sinlessness then demands our obedience. We were straying, but now we've been bought and set on the path leading to eternal peace with God. And our shepherd leads us into obedience even in the face of suffering. And thus we are healed of the mortal wound we were born with. Christ having received the just punishment due to us. By his wounds, we have been healed. And though formerly straying, we are now in his fold, under his care, and commanded to follow his example for his glory, for the good of others, and for our own good. Yeah. May we follow that pattern by his grace. Woof. Wow. Sometimes we just need to be in awe of the Word of God and the God of the Word. So we turn our attention to application. Four application points, four B's. Four B's that start with B E. B B's. Not ball bearings. B, B, never mind. Four application points that start with the letter B. Beloved, behave, behold, and believe. Beloved, behave, behold, and believe. And I'm just going to stay within the passage today to speak to these application points because we're running out of time. Beloved. That's our first application point. As those who have been adopted into the family of God, as those who are the children of God, who share the common heritage of God as our Father, we are beloved by God and are to be beloved to each other. No, not me. God God doesn't love me. If you are His child, listen, you are His beloved. That's wonderful. And he puts the orphans in families. And we're beloved within the family of God. How in the world somebody could say they want to be a Christian and not be in church is just beyond me. That's another B word, beyond. It's not an application point though. How could you not want the fellowship of your brothers? How could you not want to be beloved to them and to beloved them? That's not. That doesn't work, but see what I'm saying. Being loved, we are to be loving. And being loved, we are to be loved by those that we are loving. And it's wonderful. God shows us partiality. We show each other partiality. We saw, I don't remember if it was last week or week before... Do good to everybody, especially those of the household of the faith. We should love everybody, but we should really love these people. Your brothers and sisters. Not just your providence brothers and sisters, even though I think there should be a partiality even to these people. It's what we sign covenants to do. But we are to especially love the household of the faith, our brothers in Christ. And you say, well, I don't know, man. I I don't know if I'm worthy of that. You're not, but God made you worthy by loving you and setting His love on you before the foundation of the earth. Get back to Wednesday night, and why does He love us? Because He loves us. And since He loves us, we are beloved. And since we are beloved, let's enjoy that. And know that there's nothing we can do to change that. Thank God. Because if there was anything I could do to change it, I would. I'd blow it. But he has set his love on me. And we are to set our love on him and each other. That's beloved. That was the very first word of our passage today. Now behave. This whole passage that we read today is explaining how we are to behave, how we are to conduct ourselves in the midst of this world. This is how we do what we do. How are we to behave? We're to behave as sojourners and exiles. We know that this world and its system is not our home. We know that we're fighting a battle with ourselves in the midst of it because part of us still likes what the world likes. And so we recognize that and like, I'm just passing through. I'm a sojourner. I'm an exile. These passions that wage war against my spirit, I've got to behave differently than what they're calling on me to do. I've got to behave in a certain way toward outsiders, toward those who are outside the faith. I want them to see my good deeds and thus give glory to God. I'm not to hate them or to shake my fist at them or to roll my eyes at them and, oh, be disgusted by those Gentile dogs. I got to behave in such a way that they see my good deeds and give glory to the Father. But there are certain sins you hate, certain sins that are different than your sins, right? Behave in such a way that you understand that I'm conducting myself in a way that I want these people, all these outsiders, to see my good deeds and hopefully glorify God on the day of visitation when God visits them and saves them. That's how we behave toward outsiders. We are to behave as the best citizens that our country knows. There should not be a better citizen than the Christian. An American or Canadian citizen... Sorry, Andrew. Um, there should not be a better citizen than the Christian. Now, if the country governing body would pass laws that demand that you disobey God, you disobey those laws. Amen. If the emperor says you cannot pray to God... Like Daniel, you open your window and you pray three times a day. If the government passes a law that you don't like, you obey it. If there are laws that you would like to see passed, you lobby for them. I praise God for the overturning of Roe versus Wade. We celebrate at the sanctity of life. And we don't hate people who want to have an abortion. Good citizens care for other people. We want good laws, godly laws to be passed. But we conduct ourselves as good citizens of the country that we do live in while we're waiting on our future true kingdom that we're going to live in. If you are a servant, an employee, conduct yourself as the best dadgum servant that that company has. And show all respect to your bosses. The ones directly in front of your face. Those up the corporate ladder that have no idea what you're going through. When nothing's working in your workplace. They've never seen your workplace. They don't know your workplace. It's easy to shake our fists at those people. Respect them. Show honor to them. Look through them to the authority that they wield and see God behind that. Honor everyone. Honor everyone. But they don't look like me. They don't smell like me. They don't eat the food I eat. They don't like the things I like. They're sinners. Honor them as those made in the image of God. Love the brotherhood. That should be easy for us. But we still need the Spirit's help to do that. Fear God. And honor the emperor. Honor the emperor. Even Nero? Even Joe Biden? Absolutely. Absolutely. You don't have to like him to honor him, by the way. You don't have to vote for him. You don't have to commend him and he's a jolly good fellow. Nobody does this anymore, and they should. <laughs> yes, honor the emperor. That's what Christians do. Amen. That's how you are to behave as beloved of the Father. Beloved, behave now, behold. Listen. This only works if we look away from ourselves and our situations and circumstances and fix our eyes on Jesus. Behold Him. Behold His example. You can't be what you should be until you see what you should be. And where do we see what we should be? We see it in the life of Christ. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Behold that. Behold him. And behave thusly as the beloved of God, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's not a tagline that we throw on just because we have to. But we do have to. This can't work unless you're looking at Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who set the tone, who, who literally created the mold that we're being shaped and fashioned into. Look to Jesus as your example. And as you look to Him, beloved, as you behave in such a way, as you behold Him, believe in Him. Behold, behave, uh, beloved, behave, behold, and believe. Believe what? He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Believe what? That by his wounds you have been healed. Believe what? For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Believe that you are a sinner. Believe that he bore your sins in his body on the tree. Believe that he did that, that we might die to sin And live to righteousness. Believe that his wounds have healed you. Believe that you were straying like a sheep. But now the great shepherd, the overseer of your souls, has called you into his fold. To be beloved. To behave in such a way as to glorify him. To behold him. To look upon him. So that you spend your life living by, believing in. That's how the Christian conducts himself in the midst of this world. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that you are always working. And we ask that you would work in us and through us in such a way, God, that we would conduct ourselves in such a way that people might see our good works and give glory to you. Help us to be those, God, who continually are entrusting ourselves to you because we know that you judge justly. We know that vengeance belongs to you. That's not our role. And we're not to fight for our rights, God. We're to submit ourselves to you, especially when that means unjust suffering because we believe that it's gracious in your eyes when we do what is right and suffer unjustly for it. We believe that you are carrying us home. And if we're limping across the Jordan, we're going to be made whole when we finally cross it. God, help us to be good citizens. Help us to love each other. Help us to honor everybody. Help us to fear you and to honor the emperor. Help us to be doers of your word and not hearers only. And we know that we've got to have your help to do this right. So we ask for it and expect it. And God, if there be those here within the sound of my voice that have not put their trust in Jesus, who have not believed on the work of Jesus for their salvation, Holy Spirit, speak life now that they might be convicted of their sins, confess their sins, and see the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross as sufficient to pay the penalty for their sins, that they might be called the beloved of God. May it happen according to your will, for your glory, for the good of others, and for our own good. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, Amen. I mean, you're dismissed, but stay and eat with us if you can.